In a culture of self-assertion, we will become more and more incapable of forgiveness. And Christians will more and more be a counterculture in which forgiveness is still possible. And I think Christians, therefore, can be salt and light in this country if we're still able to forgive, but not if we start to use all the same belligerent sort of language that everybody else is using. Well, that's the late Dr. Tim Keller with a great insight about the power of forgiveness. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. As many of you know, Dr. Keller passed away just a couple of weeks ago after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. He was a very well-known pastor, theologian, writer, and apologist, and the co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which trains pastors around the world. I had the privilege of speaking with him for one of his final interviews, and we want to honor his memory by coming back to this important conversation that we had about forgiveness. His most recent book is called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? In our discussion, Dr. Keller shared so many profound and helpful ideas on this topic that we so desperately need to understand in our culture today as we learn to forgive as the Church of Christ and extend grace to others. I talked with him about being salt and light in the culture and using this incredible tool, forgiveness, to attract hostile people to Christianity. We had the conversation near his home just a few months ago, and we were outdoors. You're going to hear some of that ambient sound in New York City. So here's that discussion with the late Dr. Tim Keller on Refocus with Jim Daly. Let me make a statement and have you respond to it. Somebody said to me the other day, one of the mistakes we are making in the church it's always uh, an alert when you hear somebody mention that, is that we tend to use carnal tools against a carnal world and expect a spiritual outcome. In other words, we don't, we're not engaging the fruit of the Spirit, which forgiveness would be part of. So we try to fight the spiritual battle within our human capacity using carnal tools, fleshly tools, yeah. anger, whatever it might be, unforgiveness, and then we expect some kind of a spiritual outcome in that battle with somebody who doesn't know God. Speak to that concept of the fading of forgiveness, which you mentioned in the book, and how in this culture today, with less God orientation, understanding of God, there is a fading of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, let's stay there. I hope you will stay here because it's actually, a, there's more than one thing to say about this. Um, let's just talk about the fact that we all know including Christians, everybody's more combative, everybody's less forgiving, everybody's less congenial, everybody's less, every, and everybody is saying, maybe it's because of the emphasis on power and justice that even Christians have taken on, that uh, power and justice is more important than love and forgiveness, that if you compromise, if you say nice things about those people who are really the, the, the villains and the, the trouble, that it's unpleasing to God, not pleasing to God, and it's hurting our culture. And so, but it's not just on the right. You know, it's also, I, I live here, and <laughs> the, uh, uh, there is a, le- a left progressivism that's every bit as bitter right. and unforgiving. And I would say, I don't know what the percentages are, but they, both the left and the right, uh, especially the more uh, strong left and right, are very unforgiving in both their cases, very unforgiving. And they are very loud. I mean, in other words, they're the ones that are on Twitter. They're the ones that are in the media. Right. They're the ones that seem to know how to leverage the media. And it's a little difficult for me to tell just how big they are. I really, I'm not sure. But they, the trouble is that they are kind of, they disagree on everything except that one, and that is you don't forgive. Right. <laughs> so that is yeah. a cultural move. It feels like, you know, from a spiritual construct, I've often felt it feels like something's been unsealed, to use biblical language. It's like this discontent. Something's been released. Something's been released that yeah. is causing a great deal of discontent, frustration, yeah. unforgiveness. I put it toward the idea that there's less of God in the culture. I there's think less so. cohesion in the culture about biblical truth. We stop teaching the Bible. Uh, I guess the point being, when you, as the founding fathers said, you know, this democracy, this republic is built for a moral people, 
and it's it won't work with any other. Yeah. And then you start thinking about the fact that if we're not treating each other well with basic truth, right. it's going to fall apart potentially. Yeah. You know, as a I must say, as a younger born again evangelical, when I went to Hopewell, Virginia, in 1975. And everybody in town, there's a typical southern small town, 20,000 people basically, not, not a big town. Uh, and everybody there w- went to a, one of the, a church, just about everybody. And everybody was a nominal Christian. It was, it was a little frustrating though, because you could just tell there wasn't a vitality there. Uh, you could see the hypocrisy, especially when it came to sex and all sorts of other things. And you just said, oh, these people think they're Christians and they're not. Now, looking back on it, uh, I was probably a little too hard on them. Yeah, nominal Christianity actually has a role, a role to play in a culture. So you have the real vital Christians, and you have the, you know, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not religious, I don't believe in God. But the majority of people always are nominal, used to be nominally religious. Still about 64%. It still I is, think. but it used to be more like 80, 80% 90%, right. right. And and they respected the Bible, and they respected themes like like forgiveness. They knew they should forgive. If you talk to them about it, they say, of course, you know, Jesus died on the cross and to forgive our sins and we should be forgiving. And that would resonate with them, whether they were believers, real believers or not. And now that doesn't resonate actually at all. And I think you're right. One of the reasons is just because the percentage of nominal religious people or people that actually still let religion influence their life in any way is going down and down. That's one reason. I think I'd also say we can get into this um, if you want. You're the you're the leader here of the interview. That forgiveness has been abused. I think it's fair to say it has not been well understood. What the Bible says about forgiveness is not all that well understood in many quarters, and in some cases, actually has been used against people. Uh, a, a good example, by the way, even though it's an extreme example, there was this, it's in the book. There was a, a North American, a woman from America who was a nun, and she was down somewhere, I think, in Central America working among the poor. And government troops who were very, um, you know, they, they were basically like military police or government troops, came into a particular place and just started raping women. Huh. Didn't realize that she was North American. When they found out she was, they got really frightened. And, and, but then they found out she was a nun. They said, well, you know, you're a nun. You've got to forgive. You can't, you can't, you know, tell on us or anything. You have to forgive. You just let go. And it's an extreme case. Right. But uh, there's a lot of people who think that's right. That's what forgiveness is, that you don't, you don't rectify anything. You don't ask for justice. You, you just cover it up. Yeah. And so I, I think one reason is less religious, religion in our culture. The other reason is... Very often, forgiveness hasn't been well served by the so-called Christians or the, or the people who have tried to use it. Right, and oftentimes we don't forgive very well either, and uh, we're said to be hypocrites for that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's let a lot me, of work to do. Let me ask you: in the book, you talk about three distortions uh-huh. of forgiveness: non-conditional, transactional, and then no forgiveness. Let's go ahead and jump into those three and maybe give us a definition of those. Well, the first one is more the therapeutic one. Uh, the no condition. In other words, what it says is the purpose of forgiveness is just to help you get past your anger. Now, this is partly true. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, if you, Jesus says, I mean, uh, the book of Hebrews says, be careful that a root of, about a root of bitterness, let it, let it spring up and harm a people. Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold. Right. So what they're both saying is that if you don't forgive, it hurts you. Uh, it opens you to other things. It, it, it can, we all know, by the way, bitterness can actually destroy your, your health. Right. You know, it can really hurt your heart, your, give you an ulcer. Um, and it's also true that it can just destroy relationships. So it's fair to say one of the reasons you ought to forgive is not good for you. Right. But the therapeutic approach basically says... You've, you've got to uh, get free of your anger and has no concern at all for the ruined relationship. And matter of fact, it kind of despises the person who wronged you. It's almost like saying, don't let him, you know, if it's a him, don't let him, uh, you know, he's not worth it. I mean, they, right. they, they, I've read a lot of the more secular therapeutic books on why forgiveness is important. 
But the books are all about how can you get free and happy, not about what's best for the person who wronged you, what's best for society, what's best for community. Should we be confronting him? Should we be reconciling with him? No, it's all internal. So it's partly right, but it's, it's actually, I don't think it's going to work. It's selfish. And it also rules that it doesn't have any kind of vertical relationship with God either. Right. It's just like, I'm just going to get past this because I'm strong. And so that's the first kind of forgiveness. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think so much of this life, we're selfish creatures, I believe. And I think even in this regard, the fact that we would look through the lens of forgiveness, say, okay, where's the benefit for me? Yeah. <laughs> Reinforces that What's selfishness. What's in it for me? Right. And uh, not what is best for the other person. That's right. Which is more of a godly or, or God or community. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Jim, you just said the Christian understanding of forgiveness is it is a concern for human community, both inside the church and outside. You can't really have marriage without oh, forgiveness. Yeah. You can't have, I think, friendship without forgiveness. You can't even have uh, multi-ethnic relationships without forgiveness. So. The idea of it's being individually just concerned about how I'm psychologically, that's wrong. The second kind of, I'd say, second false or the mistake about forgiveness is the kind that actually focuses on this, that says it's highly conditional. Like, I don't have to forgive at all unless this person comes and grovels before me. Right. Uh, Interestingly, Martha Nussbaum at University of Chicago, who's not a believer of any kind, She's very critical. She thinks that's the Christian idea of forgiveness. And she goes to Luke 17 where it says if somebody repents, you have to forgive him. And if he repents, you know, 70 times 7, you have to forgive him 70 times 7. And she says basically forgiveness isn't what it looks like. It's really a way of punishing people, Mm. making them grovel under the the image of being so gracious and forgiving. But actually, I'm not going to forgive you unless you come and you lick my boots. Right. And, and, you, and, and so she sees it as very, very uh, punitive and harsh. And actually, it may be. I mean, in other words, I, that's, not, that's also uh, a mistake. It's not uh, the full dimensions of, uh, yeah. of biblical forgiveness. You know, Tim, when you, when you look at the issue of victimhood, you mentioned that briefly, but Victimhood, it's showing itself in so many ways today, whether it's the Me Too movement or, or uh, you know, racial issues. It seems that victimhood can be a t- terrible barrier to forgiveness, that if you're always thinking of self again, how you've harmed me, and you just keep playing that tape in your head, there's no avenue to take toward forgiveness, is there? We have, to, yes. We, the reason we have to be so careful, I'm going to say yes, Carefully, And the reason I'm saying yes carefully is even though that nun case that I mentioned a minute ago is extreme, extreme, it is true that especially in the 70s and 80s, because I saw it, Jim, that very often churches that would have, let's just say, a youth pastor and a, a girl would say, come to the elders and say, uh, this youth pastor molested me. We were on a retreat and he grabbed my you know, part of my body and all that. They would go, the youth pastor would say, I'm really, really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And then they come back and say to her, he, he repented, you got to forgive, which means don't say anything to anybody else. Right. Uh, so as you Sign this document. Very often. <laughs> I mean, the point is that there was, especially amongst conservative churches, and I know I'm old enough, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was a kind of uh, conservative evangelical church that said we should never go outside. I mean, First Corinthians 6 says don't Christians shouldn't be suing each other in court. Right. But that's different than if a husband has hit his, beat his wife or uh, a, a youth pastor has actually molested or perhaps even raped a, a, a girl. Uh, they would say he, he repented, you must forgive. Now, see, this saves the church the embarrassment of going to the police and in many cases, it really was using uh, a kind of distorted idea of forgiveness against the girl and against her parents, saying, you, you know, you've got to forgive. And, and so the youth pastor just goes on, and that happened a lot. Yeah. So the trouble is that <laughs> the, um, 
even though he repented, I mean, you know, okay, he repented, so you've got to forgive. So it really has been used against people. And yet, at the same time, I'm agreeing with the tenor of your original question, Jim, which was a person can get locked into, I'm, victim is, is my identity. Right. And if I actually let go of my anger, I've lose my identity. I have seen right. that, too. And we've got to be really careful that we don't say that to anybody who's got a, uh, a rightful, just cause. A person who's been wronged and is trying to get justice, we can't shut that down by just saying, oh, you're into victimhood. Yeah. But at the same time, there are people who are. And that's really hard because the people on the left, you never tell a victim there's anything wrong with them. People on the right are, are shaming victims all over the place. Right. Here we go again. I know it sounds very... No, but it's it, it, fundamentally, we have to wake up every day remembering how to do these things as believers. Uh, novelist Carrie Fisher, you yeah. referenced this. I want to make sure people hear this. It's fairly well known, but not everybody will have heard this. The idea of poison. Describe uh, the comment that you made, that she made, and you put in the book. Yeah, she she basically says, and by the way, I when I was looking this up, people have said that she ripped this off from other people. Yeah, I'm sure. Whoever. And I have no idea, <laughs> but all I know is basically the idea is that Bitterness, staying bitter at somebody's like drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. Yeah, that's what I mean by saying the therapeutic aspect is true. It's, I mean, I remember years ago with one girl, 15 years old, had a really very difficult father. He was, she was so mad at him. And at one point, I said, "You realize if you don't forgive him, he wins." Right? She said, "Why? Because you're going to be controlled the rest of your life by him. In fact, what you'll do things just because you know that would bother your father." Or you'll do things just, you won't do things just because you know he would have wanted that. And I said, he'll end up controlling you. And uh, that was my beginning. But then I had to go and beyond that and say, the reason ultimately, and maybe we should get there here. Yeah, the, <laughs> reason, the reason Christians forgive is because they're forgiven by God. And as soon as you bring that vertical thing in, it, it keeps you from being totally therapeutic or totally, uh, you know, make, making the other person grovel. And uh, yeah, it, think of that. What's feeding that in you that you want that person to grovel? Yeah, that doesn't sound healthy. No. See, <laughs> if you have the vertical, that forgiveness is something that I've experienced from God, undeserved but but full. Then that it builds me up a little bit. You know, right. it says, "Hey, God loves me." So people who are trying to hurt you, they they don't hurt you as much, frankly. Yeah. Because you know they hurt my reputation, but God loves me. Okay, so you don't feel like they, they've robbed me of everything. Uh, but it also humbles you, and you look at a person who's sinned against you and say, well, I've sinned against God, and he's forgiven me. Yeah. So that vertical makes all the difference. But it's put to the test, and you have great examples in the book. One was Desmond Tutu, who was from South Africa, yeah. uh, Nelson Mandela. They lived through apartheid. They fought apartheid. Um, amazing story. Nelson Mandela's story is amazing, being uh, imprisoned at Robben Island and all the inhumane things he suffered through there. But Desmond Tutu came out, and uh, President Mandela then gave him the assignment for reconciliation of white and black conflict in South right. Africa. Describe the way he uh, pulled that together and what was profound about what he did. Well, he decided not to do the Nuremberg trial stuff which is that anybody uh, on either side, uh, in other words, the white police were really, really brutal. You know, they go in a place where there's guerrilla warfare and all that, and they would just kill people, everybody. Uh, it's also true, however, and Desmond Tutu pointed out the fact that, that the black Africans who were uh, revolutionaries, but they were not always good to each other. You know, there were different true. groups, and, they, and there were atrocities very often black-on-black black atrocities as well as white-on-black atrocities. And there might have been some black-on-white, I don't know. Sure. But the point was, he knew that it would just take forever. Um, to sort it out. He said it would be a lot of bitterness. So what he came up with was this. If you came forward and admitted absolutely truthfully what you'd done, you would get amnesty. And what this did was, uh, if you didn't, then you could be prosecuted, sent to jail, executed, whatever. And what it did was, it first of all, it brought a lot of people out who were, would probably have hidden, 
Right. And it really showed people what had actually happened. So that was good. Secondly, he said, what's interesting is a lot of the consequences were not uh, legal, they were natural. I mean, so, some of the white, white men who admitted the atrocities, some of them, their, their wives left them when they found out what they'd been doing. Huh. In other words, he said there, was a, there were a lot of consequences, but they were more natural. He, he just said it would have been, he thinks it would have maybe plunged them back into civil war if they tried to do the Nuremberg trial approach. Right. So what he said was, if you come out and confess, essentially you got forgiven. The government essentially forgave you if you were willing to repent. Right. And you didn't hold anything back. He said, yeah, there were natural consequences. People's reputations were ruined. But uh, looking at it, it's pretty fascinating. I, I don't know that I would say every single society has to do it that way. But Tutu clearly was using a Christian. And by the way, I don't, don't agree with everything Desmond Tutu right. believed theologically either. But he was using the basic repentance forgiveness yeah, it's really good. Uh, model. You know, another example certainly cuts close to Colorado Springs because it involved the U.S. gymnastics team and the U.S. Oh. Olympic Center is there in Colorado Springs. So we heard about this news over and over again, but uh, Dr. Nasser and his despicable behavior with those girls. Uh, speak to the first female gymnast that actually stepped forward and how she saw forgiveness work in that real difficult situation. Yeah, Rachel Den Hollander. Interestingly about Rachel, who I don't know personally, um, but you know, having gotten through the book, I make uh, use of a lot of what she has written. She's actually, interestingly enough, she's very conservative theologically. So she's, she and her husband wrote a paper on why the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Wow. The idea that uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ on the cross received the wrath of God and thereby took all of our punishment so that we could be forgiven and we could receive his righteousness. She had a paper on that about like, that is actually a wonderful resource for uh, doing justice and helping uh, victims of abuse. Because what she said was, and I totally agree with her, is the cross was not more about justice than mercy or more about mercy than justice. At the very same moment he died, he was totally satisfying justice and opening the door for infinite mercy for right. us to be forgiven. So she would say, and I tr the way I tried to summarize this was that you should never pit f forgiveness and justice against each other. You should never say, well, I could either forgive or do justice. I think the right way to say is if you don't forgive first, you won't actually be pursuing justice, you'll be pursuing vengeance. Huh. And that almost always goes astray. It, it doesn't usually get the justice, it usually just creates more retaliation and more bitterness on your part. And uh, There's absolutely no reason why you can't forgive completely from the heart and really have perfectly good will toward the perpetrator. And yet now I'm going out to try to get that person exposed and accountable to the law. Why? for his sake, so he doesn't keep doing it, for other victims' sake, for God's sake. He's, in other words, instead of for my sake, I'm gonna, make, right. I'm gonna make that sucker suffer the way he made me suffer. No, that's gone. Well, she was really bold too, even in talking with him. Yeah, she said, I hope you find forgiveness, but. Because it's more important yeah. for God to forgive you than yes, for and, right. me to forgive Basically, you. Basically, she said, I've forgiven you. I'm, right. I'm seeking justice, but not out of vengeance. But I hope that you will finally repent so that God, you find God's forgiveness. It's a incredibly balanced and very unusual, I think. I think her approach is oh, it unusual. It was overwhelmingly yeah. forgiving and in some ways kind toward yeah. him in terms of understanding his sin. Yeah, you don't have over-the-top rhetoric about evil. I mean, right. It's just, it, it's wrong. It's You know, Tim, that's a whole nother thing in forgiveness as well that it feels like, and you've written a lot about this, I think Jesus, as he points out the pharisaical heart, it was their inability to see themselves yeah. with truth. In other words, they were very um, mindful of their goodness and righteousness and very demeaning toward those that hadn't hit their standard. Yeah. And that, that in and of itself can create a lot of 
uh, unforgiveness towards sinners, right? And yes. if we start with the idea that we're all sinners saved by grace, that God has forgiven us much through Jesus, then that can give us, it should give us a little more empathy, even if we've got our act together. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've often tried to figure out the, the, um, the, especially the serial abusers, you can look at the Pharisees. Um, you can also look at what the book of Proverbs calls a fool, especially the mocker. Some people might today call them narcissists. Fools are uh, excessively self-centered and therefore excessively blind right. to the destruction they do. It just—it's just more than more than average. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, my friends uh, Dan Allender and. Uh, Trevor oh, Dan, Lawman yeah. years ago wrote a book called Bold Love, and there's a section in there where he talked about the evil person, the fool, and the regular sinner. And the evil person is someone who says, I know I'm destroying people and I, I like it. And they're, they're relatively rare, uh, but the fool is not that rare. They're kind of blind to right. the destruction they do. And an awful lot of abuser types are, I feel like, basically, I think the Bible does talk about them, they're called fools. It also talks about, uh, in First Peter 5, about, I don't want you to lord over others. And it, it uses a word there that, that does refer to people who just love being in, a, in power. And so it, the Bible does talk yeah. about some of those folks. Well, we're always cautioned not to just, you know, read those passages and, you know, zoom right by them. Yeah. Another one is the, where Jesus was talking about the unforgiving servant. And you mentioned yeah. that in the book too. Oh, yeah. What's the story of the, and again, we could read it and then we don't apply it to our own lives, but what's the unforgiving servants? Well, Kath, Kathy may, now, by the way, I didn't write this book with Kathy, but Kathy's always, always involved. <laughs> That's uh, an honest man. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Now I've been three or four books that we really did write together. Um, what Kathy says is, the other books that don't have her name on it just means that she puts her oar in, but then she doesn't. But then she says, she hey, this to, is your book. I don't have to do the right, copy editing. She doesn't editing. Have to feel responsible. Yeah, yeah. Um, what she said is you got to start with the parable of the unmerciful servant. In fact, she said she felt that over the years in our ministry that that was probably the key story. And Tell so that she, story for the listeners. Well, the good thing, yeah. So she asked me to start with it, and I did because, she, in fact, she insisted I start with it. So right. it, it's a. It's first of all, it talks about a king who has a servant who owes the king ten thousand talents. It's a debt, and every commentator says this is clearly Jesus' way of saying an infinite debt because it's crazy. A talent was like a year's wages at most. It was like, it's like 10,000 years of wages. They probably, maybe not even the Roman emperor was worth 10,000 talents at all. It's difficult to know historically, right. but, but extreme. basically it's a crazy, it's a crazy, crazy amount. And, uh, he says, pay my, pay me. And the, the servant says, please forgive my debt. And the king does it. Okay, great. So then the, the first servant goes on his way and he meets a second servant, a fellow servant, who owes the first servant just a little amount of money. And uh, so the first servant says, pay me. The second servant says, oh, please forgive my debt. And the first servant says, no, into debtor's prison with you. And when the f king hears about it, he brings the first servant in and he asks him a question. And this is the whole story and it's very powerful. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Ta-da, there it is. I think that's kaboom. Yeah, it is kaboom. In fact, you know, the only part of the Lord's Prayer that ever gets repeated, uh, it, you know, when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, he always, then always repeats at the very end, and, and, and I want you to know that my Father's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others are linked. I mean, he says it different ways, but Jesus is basically saying those two things are linked. Yeah. If you think God's forgiven you, but you can't forgive other people, I'm not sure you have asked for God's forgiveness. I'm not sure you've repented. Because if you repent, you, you know you're a sinner. And if you can't forgive, then you can say, oh, God's forgiven me. I don't know that he has. So it, I, that just goes right through you. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And, uh, and also the difference between this infinite debt that we owe God and the the smaller debt. That's the heart of the whole thing. It is. And so Kathy said, just 
you know, <laughs> cut right to the chase. <laughs> Go right to it. Right. Basically, say that, and then the book unpacks it. You had another really impactful story. Right here in New York, we're hearing some of the ambient sounds of Are sirens. You? and What? But you had a story of a New York gang member, young man, yeah, yeah. who uh, demonstrated incredible forgiveness. And describe that story. And where, where does a, what I would decide or believe would be his unbelieving heart, but you, he can demonstrate some powerful godly truths even if he doesn't have a faith in Christ. Well, you know, there's actually two stories. One of, one of them was a, a policeman who was trying to break something up and was uh, injured by a kid, you know, a, a, an inner city youth, and he was paralyzed the rest of his life. And um, it's interesting, he tried to talk to the kid in prison, he tried to write him in prison, and the guy wouldn't talk to him, and then, int- weirdly enough, he got out and then died in a motorcycle yeah. accident. Huh. And then there was another one where the boy uh, he wasn't hurt by the. He wasn't the police. He, he was hurt by other gang members, and he um, was also paralyzed. And he he also forgave. And in both cases, the boy uh, forgave the people who had had um, uh, basically paralyzed him. And the 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 policeman had forgiven the youth who had harmed him. In fact, the policeman. By the way, there, I know I'm I'm kind of directing your question to something else. Interesting, the policeman, looking back, said, I, I now actually realize that it did look pretty racist for me just to show up at these poor kids' places of uh, where they were playing and where they were living. And he, he wasn't just convicted that he needed to become a Christian and forgive, but even that he actually had been a person who was sort of guilty of injustice. Yeah. So it's, it's all those, uh, it's never just I've forgiven, yeah. But usually there's a, a humbling that happens and a new, a new way of understanding themselves. Yeah. So forgiveness is really transformational. It doesn't just reconcile you to other people. It actually gives you a completely different approach well, to yourself. I, I think the purpose in me asking about those stories is really to set this question up, and that is how, how do you know when you have not or you have uh, truly forgiven somebody? It, there can be a bit of fuzziness about oh, yeah. that. I'll give you a quick example. For me, when I speak about my childhood and my dad, the alcoholic, and they divorced my mom and dad, and men who are 60 and 70 years old will be in this line, and they'll come up to me in tears saying, I've never been able to forgive my father. Yeah. And I, it's a hard one for me. That, what do you say? I mean, you have to let it go. You have to not hold that against them. You've got to forgive them. But there is a lot of that, Tim, in the yeah. Christian culture, just these grievances that we really haven't dealt with. So how do we know, A, that they exist, and then B, if we've actually if, forgiven? Right. I don't think there's a bright line that you say, if, you, if you've passed there, I, I do actually think it's, frankly, relative. I mean, I'll get, that sounds terrible. Oh, my goodness. The Presbyterian minister, he's a relativist. No, I don't mean that. I mean this. Here's what I'll do. Shorthand, here's my pastoral advice to somebody. I will say, and it's in the book, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Most people say, I, I'm still mad, uh-huh. so I haven't forgiven. So I say, okay, for a moment, why don't we uh, separate the two? Because some people would say, since I'm still mad, I can't forgive. And I'll say, no, forgiveness is something you can grant before you actually feel it. That's hmm. a very important. Actually, well, what does it mean to grant? Okay, forgiveness is a, is a, it's a commitment. In principle, the commitment is I am not going to take revenge on this person. I am not going to make this person pay. Okay? In other words, that's the definition of any forgiveness. I mean, in the book I try to say, if uh, somebody knocks your lamp over, it's $50, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, you can either say, yes, so that'll be $50, please, or you can say, forget it which means you forgive them, but then you have to go out and buy the lamp. The $50 doesn't go away. Right. Or, or maybe you go in darkness, but the point is somebody pays. And when forgiveness is always, always deciding I'm not going to make the other person pay, I'm going to absorb it. But to really grant forgiveness day in and day out is to make a commitment to do three things. Not to keep bringing the matter up to the person, 
not to keep bringing the matter up to other people to try to kind of run them down, you know, get back at them by hurting their reputation, and not to keep bringing it up over and over again to yourself. So what that means is I, if I find myself thinking about it too much, I say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a commitment to yourself. Uh, if I find myself kind of having an opportunity to run the person down to somebody else, I'm not going to do that. And if I have an opportunity to use this against, this especially happens, by the way, in marriage. I, boy, I, know, I was thinking that. I know that. you're going to think about that. In other words, something you say, if, you're, if your spouse says, please forgive me, honey, for that, and you say yes, then you can't bring it up again f- six months later. You must not bring it up six months later. And here's the thing. If you actually make follow through on those commitments, you'll feel the anger diminishing over time. Mm. If you don't make those three commitments, the anger, I think, stays a very, very long time. So it's granted before it's felt. It's The granting is basically, I'm not going to take revenge, but in actual day in and day out, it means just refusing to go in those directions. And I think, now, where you actually cross the line, I don't know. But it gets better and better. No, I appreciate that. I think that's part of the problem. People vacillate jumping on both sides of that line you're describing. I think I've forgiven him. I don't think I've forgiven him. And well, you, you, uh, you, what you want to say, if you're thinking there's still anger there, okay, maybe you haven't completely existentially forgiven him. But if you make some of these commitments, make these commitments, then you actually you have forgiven, and eventually yeah. this is going to work itself out in your heart. You know, Tim, I often think, you know, you're one of the leading theologians. You've, you've talked and written so deeply on meaningful biblical topics. This one is kind of in that category. You know, what makes it so difficult for us to forgive? Is it that contrary to our human nature that it is only God's nature that you find that forgiveness? It's not in the other guy's uh, I think I do think the, re, the, the the level of spiritual reality. I mean, the, the way the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, "A Divine and Supernatural Light," talks about the difference between knowing honey is sweet and actually tasting honey. Huh. If I tell you honey is sweet, you'll say, "Okay, I believe honey is sweet." But if you haven't tasted it, it you don't really know it. You know it, but you don't really know it. And yeah. once you taste it, then you know it and know it. I mean, experientially you know it and intellectually you know it. And I'd say it's one thing to say I'm a forgiven sinner. I know that I'm a sinner, but absolutely saved by grace. To what degree is that a spiritual reality to your heart? You know it, but I mean, to what degree is it a spiritual reality? And the more it's a spiritual reality, the more more it makes you weep with both joy and humiliation. Yeah. The easier it is to forgive. It's just it's it's almost as simple as that. It. I don't think um, the forgiveness is hard. It, it's harder the less God is real to you, and it's easier the more He's real to you. Boy, Sorry. that is a good statement right there. Yeah. That's powerful. And I think that that also in interviewing a lot of women on the theme of marriage and parenting, the one thing that I've noticed. They have an incredible capacity to look at themselves first. I think we as men, we kind of have the ego that says, that's the other guy's fault. But yeah. in that context, the question of how to forgive yourself. I'm not the good mom. I'm not the perfect wife. I'm not a good husband. Where does that forgiveness for self come yeah, in? Yeah, where does that come? If somebody's asking me that, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to work with them. I'm not sure that I think it's the best way of talking about it. Huh. Uh, now, if you're R.C. Sproul, what R.C. used to do is used to say, if somebody said, I, have, uh, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And he says, so you have higher standards than God, huh? <laughs> it's a little, which I thought was a little bit, I don't know. I'm not sure that's the best bedside manner. Somebody's really struggling. But he's right. No, at the core, what you're saying is you're... You're really saying, I have higher standards than God. I mean, people, well, wait a minute. No, I can't. I don't have high... Here's what's going on, I think. I am not going to say this right out of the blocks. I'm not even sure it's true. With with a particular person, I have to spend some time. Generally speaking, there's another God going on here. God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Okay, if your real God is your career... And you did something really stupid, and you're probably never going to get your career back on track. And your self-image is not so much based on, I'm a child of God. It's based on, I'm a successful... I'm an achiever. Whatever, right. Yeah. 
and now I haven't achieved and I can't forgive myself, what you've really got here is an idol. And see, false gods can't forgive. Hmm. See, what I always like to say to people is, the reason why it'd be better to, say, to serve Jesus rather than your, your career or anything else is Jesus, if you get him, he actually satisfies you. You, you know, the C.S. Lewis thing is, you get to the top of your career, or you become as beautiful as you want to be, or you get everything you want. It's and never say, enough. It's never enough. Jesus is the only God that if you get him, will satisfy you, and if you fail him, will forgive you. Your career will never forgive you for your sins. Mm. Your career will punish you the rest of your life, if that's your God. And so I, it takes me a while with people. I can't just jump in and say, oh, you must be, there must be some idolatry here. You know, I mean, in other words, I would yeah. never go in that way fast. Uh, and you might even, actually, if you know the person well and they're not in too much trouble, you might do the, the RC. It's almost like a joke saying, so you have higher standards than God? If, you know, and no, I guess not. I mean, sometimes that actually helps. Yeah. But in most cases, it's usually something that they've given their heart way too much to. Yeah. And it is punishing them because it, they failed that false God. And that's, that's where a lot of that, that comes is, from. It's really insightful. I mean, it's a test for idolatry. I mean, that is really powerful. Yes. Uh, inordinate, actually, any inordinate emotion that you can't get rid of. So uh, inordinate bitterness actually can be, towards somebody else, can mean that this is an idol. Inordinate fear, I'm going to lose it. Inordinate guilt, that oh, I failed. And you just, inordinate meaning it just doesn't seem to be resolvable. Right. Very often there's some, there's some kind of idolatry. That's something. Let me, let me go back for a moment where you have that conflict with another person and your forgiveness is dependent upon that person's response. Ah. Is, can that be okay or is that unhealthy if back to the groveling, but there may be some more subtle things like that, that right. it's only going to work if you demonstrate a certain action, Yeah, then I'll forgive you. Yeah, I'm really glad you got there. Uh, you asked that question because that's important part of the book here. There's, there's two verses that look like they're contradictions. Mark 11:25 says, Jesus says, if you're standing and praying and you realize you've got anything against anyone, forgive them. And it doesn't seem to have any conditions, just you have to forgive them. Luke 17 is where it says, if a person repents, you should forgive them. Even if they do it over and over, you forgive them. And so it looks like one is saying you don't have to forgive till they repent. The other one looks like it says you have to forgive whether they repent or not. And my dear departed friend, David Pallison, I don't know if you knew who he was, but yeah. he is a counselor who died recently, actually, I think he died of pancreatic cancer, oh, but my. anyway. He said there's an internal forgiveness that you do before immediately. That's Mark eleven twenty five, where you make those commitments we were talking about before, not to keep bringing it up to yourself and others, where you say, I'm not going to pay back, and you forgive. But then you do need to go Be, uh, for the person's sake, for God's sake, for others' sake, and say, you did something here that you really, I don't think you should have done. Now, if you go to them, having forgiven, they still may get their back up and just not want to talk to you. Uh, if you go to them kind of unforgiving and kind of vengeful saying, do you know what you did to me? They, they will definitely get their back up and not listen to you. But if you go to them forgiven, forgiving and gracious and all that, they might actually start to say, oh, I didn't realize that, I'm so sorry. And they change, and you reconcile, great. But Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And what that means is you take whatever you get. If mm. the person does not respond well or doesn't want to talk about it or even responds very poorly, you know, in a way that's really kind of half wrong, you know, it, I think what you say is I got whatever I can get, and now I'm still going to, I'm going to be forgiving and I'm going to try to be as open to the person as I possibly can. In that respect, um, I'm thinking of circumstances I've been involved in where you're extending an olive branch and it gets bitten off, you know, so you do it again and maybe a third time. Is there a time that you can say, okay, I gave it my best shot and it's just not happening and you stop extending the olive branch? Yeah, yeah I think you. I think it, that's a judgment call. As long as you... 
say that the the door is you know still open, but it may have to come from the other direction. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. In other words, I I think I don't know how often. Right. You know the Matthew eighteen thing where you go to the person and if they don't listen to you, you take somebody, and if they don't listen to you, tell it to the church. Most people do not really meet, think that Jesus is saying you, you get three tries. Right. It certainly looks like a process, and surely in different situations you would take longer and do it more often. Or uh, it's never loving to make it easy for someone to sin against you. Huh. It's not loving to that person. You know, Tim. Sometimes it helps to start with the end in mind, and I know this may be an unfair question because it puts you in a position to speak on behalf of God. But the purpose of I'm forgi- a minister, yeah. But the, <laughs> the purpose of forgiveness. I mean, what is God's goal with teaching us to be forgiving? What is He trying to achieve in our hearts? Well, the Trinity. Here's the great thing, uh, as Saint Augustine showed us: God is not unipersonal. If God was unipersonal, he could not have had a love relationship with anybody till he created somebody, angels, whatever. So you would say you, he, he had power and then he creates people or other beings and now relationship comes next. So power first, relationship. But what if God is triune? What if Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been knowing and loving and glorifying each other through all eternity, uh, beginninglessly, which is hard to grasp that. It's hard okay. to understand it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then this triune God decides to create and exercises power to create us. So it's relationship first, power second. And what it seems to me is that a triune God values relationships and love. It's the main thing. The greatest of these is love. These three remain, but, you know, someday we won't need faith or hope. We will still need love. And that basically forgiveness is, a, is just what you have to do to keep repairing relationships in a fallen world. And someday we won't have to forgive. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never have to forgive each other. Right. You know, they, we have to be forgiven by him and we have to forgive each other. So I just think that, yeah, here I am speaking for God. I think yeah. a triune God values love relationships uh, supremely. There's, yeah, that's the whole point. He's trying to teach us something through all of it. Love, exactly. forgiveness, long-suffering, exactly. all of it. Um, let me ask you this. One of the hardest things for people to do is to confront someone lovingly. And I think, again, yeah. is there a difference between a, confronting a non-believer and mm-hmm. someone within the community of Christ? And, uh, you know, the scenario makes all the difference. And I, I, I'm just thinking about, do you go about it differently? Because on the one hand, I can remember a Christian leader saying to me, who's going to hold them accountable to God's righteousness? And that would be the response to loving your neighbor, perhaps without any boundaries. So how do you, how do you engage, I guess, that accountability between the world and the church, yeah. the well, fellow believer? Certainly, I do think that if you have another professing believer who you think has wronged you, I think the Matthew 18 stuff is that you are both accountable to God, you're both accountable to the Scripture. You might be in the same church, maybe not. But I do think you the reconciliation uh, attempt can go on longer. You know, you have more resources. You probably should, should not give up on it, your brothers or sisters in Christ. Uh, I do think somebody outside, there's a limit to what you can appeal to when you're talking to them. You know, I mean, with with a Christian, you've got all that. You've got the Word of God, and you've got so many other. You've got better arguments for why you shouldn't have done that. Right. Um, and so, I guess I would just say that reconciliation. You shouldn't give up as soon. You should spend more time with it. You've got more resources for a Christian. I would say, so in some ways, it's easier than with a non-Christian because with a non-Christian you don't have as many resources you don't have as good arguments but I would say the, here's the problem with the Christian who's wronged you versus the non-Christian with the non-Christian you say well you know I, I don't know whether they know any better I mean you know the place where Treebeard in Lord of the Rings says a wizard should know better <laughs> right you know he says, he says you're, wait a minute You've done all this to the trees. And wait a minute, you, you're a wizard. You're not just somebody else. You're not just somebody else. You're a wizard. You should know better. And I do think that Christians very often find it very difficult 
to forgive other Christians for that very reason. You say, come on. Yeah. So it's easier and harder. So they, they're just different. You know, one of the uh, arguments I've heard back when I worked in the business world, this was really interesting. I, I knew a number of secular business people and they would say to me, you know, most of the Christian business people I've worked with, they wrong me. They cost me money. They didn't pay me back or something like that. And so that's why I don't pursue God. And I start smiling at them. And I can remember doing this several times. And that irritated them. And they'd look at me and I'd say, well, it's kind of foolish to keep eternal life from you because somebody didn't live it well. Mm. You know, So using the argument that somebody didn't live their Christian faith properly in your eyes is no argument not to pursue a relationship no, with God. No. <laughs> you know, what I always try to, this may not be the best bedside manner, but I said, ah, when somebody says, well, this happened, that happened, that's why I, I find Christianity. I said, so that convinced you that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, I said, yeah. I said now, wh- wait a minute, it's a non sequitur. Just Okay, so this ostensibly Christian businessman cheated you. So that means you said, ah, that just proves that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I said, you really ought to go look at the evidence <laughs> right. for the Christian faith instead of just say, yeah. you know, that guy you know, was was a hypocrite, right? So it it so I, much wiser. I kind of understand it. I mean, there's no doubt we we do believe that if you're an attractive person, you attract people to Christ. But sometimes I think people are not very logical when they when they just say, "Oh, look at that person." They say he's a Christian. That shows there's nothing to it. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, they're quack doctors. That doesn't mean medicine is yeah. is, is a bogus thing. Tim, let me, as we're wrapping up here, let me just ask you that open-ended question. When you look down the line for the nation, for the church, (laughs) where would you see us and where would you like to see us as a church, as a body of believers with all our different expressions, all the denominations, but as we confront a, a greater hostile world toward faith, yeah. How do we respond in a way that honors God? Well, on our side, those of us who have always felt, and for the last couple of decades, I have and a lot of others have said, uh, the Christian church for almost a thousand years knew how to do ministry in societies and cultures that were um, ostensibly Christian, meaning they showed um, a lot of respect for the Christian faith and almost everybody understood a lot of the basics of the Christian faith, almost everybody. And now that that's changing, and that was even true, like I said, almost 20 years ago, now that it's changing for various reasons, we actually do not know how to, as a church, thrive in a place like that. There are other parts of the world where, you know, like China, other places that thrive in a non-Christian environment. And they're thriving and they're growing. Okay. Yeah. And we don't know we do not know how to do that yet because we only know how to thrive in a Christianish environment. And so all I would say here is as much as everybody feels like the world's just changed, and it has so much in the last five, seven years, that's still our problem, I think. I still think the people who want to say, how do we reach secular people? How do we reach a younger, more secular, more individualistic, and more multi-ethnic world. Um, how do we do that? Instead of uh, the big distraction right now is the uh, a kind of progressivism and conservatism inside the evangelical church. You might say, oh, isn't the whole evangelical church gone conservative? Yeah, but it's always been... Um, no, not the whole. But, I mean, right now there's, uh, there's, there's political... Uh, forces trying to pull us apart. Right. But I think ultimately, we we still don't really know how to thrive as a church. And in some ways, I think the missional, missiological challenge is every bit as great as it's ever been. And I wish we would be concentrating on that. You know, Tim, one of the things in the culture today, the media seems to be infusing a lot of uh, unforgiveness, a lot of uh, distrust, uh, a lot of energy into the culture. 
And we as Christians, we're in culture, so we're listening to cable news, we're listening to those stories. It's good to be informed, but it can create a bitterness, an attitude of unforgiveness toward others. How do we rise above those energies <laughs> and try to fight with the right tools that God has given us? I mean, so many times with Christians now, I say, you know, the number one tool we have is loving other people. Right. That's not the best tool. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, that's, that's what they're going to say. It's exactly what they say. Yeah. See, the, the, those of us with Orthodox Christian beliefs, there is a pretty strong percentage of evangelicals who say that that's, that's just not the tool anymore. That we yeah, really have to, we have to be more combative. Wow. We have to be more uh, take no prisoner. We can't just always be playing nice. And I do think there, evangelicals will probably divide over this. And I'm not sure that, I don't know if it's 50-50 either. My guess, I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. But I do think you're going to have a lot that are going to say, fine, you do it your way. If you want to keep engaging and loving and, and dialoguing and trying to figure out how to reach them for Christ, fine. We just need to batten down the hatches and create spaces in this country where we're able to live our lives. Otherwise, they're going to just take us over. And I think that's the division. And, of course, it's not that hard to see that you and I are sitting here, we're all sitting here thinking we, we, we like the old way, which was we have to engage. We have to, we have to not compromise our doctrine, not compromise what we believe at all, at the same time, really engage, talk, dialogue, try to win people or be friends with them, if, even if, we, if they're not going to follow us in our beliefs. And I do think we're going to have a division. Every so often that's happened in American Christianity. It's happened two or three other times, I think. Yeah. We won't get into all that now. It's not right. the forgive book. But I'm, I'm extremely curious how it's going to be. That's one, one of, it's not the most important reason I want to like to live. I have my children, my grandchildren. I got writing, I got the church in general, but I also would love to see what happens to American evangelicalism. I have no idea. Well, you see it from down here or up there. I and, will. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the, the big thing. And the reason I'm even asking those broad-based questions is the fruit of the Spirit is either the core or we're going to reach a point where we're going to jettison the fruit of the Spirit, I love, know. joy, peace, goodness, kindness, mercy, yeah. and say, you know what, Lord, that was good for your century. But it's not working now. Look, I'm with you here. That's dangerous. Look, I'm so. I'm, all I'm going to say is, Amen. I I know, uh, <laughs> and I I certainly. That's one of the reasons why I think we do need to be asking people which way are you going to go now. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I I know I'm on a I'm on a Zoom call that happens uh, every week. I can't make it. Nobody makes it every week. With both believers, non-believers, people across the spectrum. And it's intriguing. It's really intriguing. There really is, I think, plenty of openness to listening to what Christians have to offer. Mm. If you are not, um, like you said, if you if you don't abandon the fruit of the spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, humility, self-control, seems anyway. to be the character of God, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I just agree with you. Yeah. These are these questions here at the end. I have no answer other than to say, Amen. Uh, Tim, the last question here. Because uh, it's such a good illustration. In the book, you mentioned a story about an Australian medical missionary, uh, which was very oh. powerful. So we don't want to miss that one. In India. And there's other stories, but uh, let's hit that one right at the end because, again, it makes such an impact. Yeah, the, uh, it was an Australian uh, medical missionary family that was uh, quite a number of years ago that was in India working with um, lepers and a lot of very, very poor people didn't have good medical treatment. Um, something that still happens today, I'm afraid, was a, a, an anti-Christian mob found the husband and I think two sons, I believe. I think there were two sons and a, and a daughter and the two sons were with the father in a car and they surrounded the car and, and, mm. and killed them. Surrounded the car and killed them. And the mother... And her daughter, after they've discovered this, said, we're going to stay here and we're going to continue the work. And eventually they, they formed a hospital. She stayed her, in her entire life and her uh, daughter grew up there. And they just said, we, you know, this is not going to stop us from loving these people. Uh, this is not going to stop us. And, of course, today they are venerated by, by the way, by the Hindu 
government, which today is actually still pretty hostile to Christians. Mm. And yet they got, I forget what the name of them is. There's some highest order of merit that was given to uh, her for, for staying there and doing all this uh, uh, health care for the poor of India. It is pretty remarkable. That is and remarkable. she And when she was being covered, it was, it was big news, of course, at the time. And she says, well, we're going to forgive and we're going to stay. Right. And forgiveness is an act of self-denial. But we live in a culture that continually says self-assertion, self-assertion. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty. Don't let anybody walk all over you. Don't let anybody keep you from what you want. In a culture of self-assertion, we will become more and more incapable of forgiveness. And Christians will more and more be a counterculture in which forgiveness is still possible. And I think Christians, therefore, can be salt and light in this country if we're still able to forgive, but not if we start to use all the same belligerent sort of language that everybody else is using. Kind of ending where we started when I said that we're in the Christian community, we're trying to use carnal tools to battle carnal you, people. You did say that. I did. How wise of you. So. To, and then expecting a spiritual result. <laughs> no, you're right. You totally. got to use spiritual tools to get a spiritual result. Totally right. <laughs> Tim, it's so good to be with you. Thank you. I mean, when you say thank you for your time, that can often be a throwaway line. But given what's happening in your life and where God has you right now, Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for actually coming all the way, (laughs) just yards from where I live in order to have a live interview. I was amazed. If you were going to, I say, if you're going to do that, okay. Well, that was kind. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's the late Dr. Tim Keller, who passed away two weeks ago, and he will be missed. It's true what Tim shared, that forgiveness is transformational. And we as Christians need to bring transformation to the culture by modeling forgiveness. The Bible says we must forgive others if we want to be forgiven. Dr. Keller understood that, and that's why in his last days of life, he told his family, I'm ready to go. He knew he was forgiven because of what Christ did for him. We all need to live in that forgiveness that we've been given and extended uh, through Jesus's grace. And uh, we all, as Christians, can claim that. I want to encourage you to get a copy of Dr. Tim Keller's great book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? If you appreciate conversations like this one on Refocus, please support our work in bringing it to you. Focus on the Family is a nonprofit organization here to spread the good news of Jesus. Your donation will help us to create more conversations like this one and provide follow-up resources to folks as well. With a gift of any amount to Refocus, I'll send you a copy of Dr. Keller's excellent book. Now let's go to the inbox segment where I get to take your questions as they relate to our topics. Here's a voicemail from Mike. Now I'm a born-again believer in Jesus, and I know that forgiveness is fundamental to Christianity. As the Bible tells us, we should forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. But I'm really struggling with forgiving people who have caused immense pain and suffering in my life, especially when the wounds run really deep and the scars are still visible. So my question to you is, how do we find the strength to forgive when forgiveness seems nearly impossible? And in cases where justice still hasn't been served, how can forgiveness coexist with the desire for accountability and fairness? Mike, that's a great question. First of all, uh, man, you need to forgive yourself for having difficulty forgiving others. I mean, some of these issues that we confront when we're deeply wounded, it takes time to heal. So I would say, out of the gate, you know, you got to wrestle with that. The Lord gives us that time to wrestle and to grieve the loss of something, the loss of a friendship, uh, the cutting wound of a friend, kind of what I'm inferring in your comment there. I'd want to encourage you to talk through that with a, a reliable, mature Christian friend or counselor, maybe someone who has demonstrated that forgiveness for you. And think about the parable of the unmerciful servant that Dr. Keller talked about. Uh, And maybe if you're still struggling with that deep hurt, call us here at Focus on the Family to set up a counseling appointment. Our trained Christian counselors will get to the root of the issue with you and give you some suggestions on how to go after it. 
to make sure that you're not poisoning yourself in this process. I mean, there is something spectacular about being able to forgive others. And I think the deeper the wound, the more spectacular the healing will be from the Lord. And I mean that uh, sincerely as a guy that was wounded deeply from his dad. And I had a lot of life issues as a boy growing up that I had to manage. And I could tell you, I have forgiven everyone in my life, and I know it'll work for you too, Mike. Great question. If you have a question for me, uh, click on the tab I've provided on the side of the page that says, leave a voicemail. If I use your question on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. I hope you've enjoyed Refocus with Jim Daly. Uh, You know, this is a brand new podcast, and we could use your help to promote it and tell your friends. Another way you can give us a boost is to like us, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have an interesting conversation with Molly Hemingway, the editor-in-chief of The Federalist about faith, the importance of the family, and engaging the culture with grace and truth. Really, our optimism is not in what's happening in the world around us, which may go well or it may go poorly, but our optimism is because we have faith in Christ Jesus and we know that we are saved and we know that even if the worst of all things happens here in the temporal space, that we have victory in Christ Jesus. That's on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.